Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Despite all the money the federal and state governments have invested into domestic violence, DV homicide numbers remain at a stable rate. Why is that? According to this week's podcast guest, Amy Moafi, it comes down to a handful of factors. Amy believes a fundamental reason is the innovation of the status quo. Services are funded to deliver the same thing and there is no real early intervention. Another issue she believes is the contradiction between rhetoric, legislation and practice. To give you a little more background information on Amy, she is the owner and director of AM Consultants and Associates, with 20 years specialist experience within the field of violence, crime and public policy. Amy developed and implemented a diversity roundtable approach for complex police investigations, resulting in consulting for USA law enforcement. She has played a major role in implementing changes in how investigations and prosecutions of domestic violence in Aboriginal communities are dealt with as well as implementing the first specialised police prosecution training and curriculum. Join us as Amy highlights her experience in DV homicide prevention and what she believes is needed in order for numbers to decrease. All right, welcome uh, Amy and thanks very much for joining me today on the podcast. Not a problem, thanks for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure Uh, and thanks for coming to the conference and and doing your presentation at the Stop Domestic Violence Conference. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's one of my favourite conferences. It's been, this is my second time speaking and third time attending, so. Oh, well, we're we're glad to have you in what's been a tough year to get people together. So we're actually just thrilled to be able to get a group of people in one room. Glad the borders could open. Yes, that's right. So Amy, tell us about where are you from and your background uh, professionally? So professionally, my background is I'm a criminologist. I specialise in domestic and violence and sexual assault um, and have worked in the industry for just over 20-odd years um, but have sort of not just stayed in the domestic violence sector. I've sort of adapted my skills and transferred them throughout the whole public service. Um, when I first started working in the industry, I worked directly with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault Yes. Working through a refuge um, and the court advocacy service. Um, and for me, it was always my, I always saw my direction professionally in uh, public policy and working in legislation and, and making it better for both victims and the offenders so that we could get the right results at the end of the day. To be able to do that successfully, though, you need to be able to have the grassroots understanding about domestic violence. So it was really important for me to work with the victims. And in some cases, the offenders as well, to understand both the psychology of the abuse as well as the victimology of the victim as they transition from um, victim through to survivor. And then take that work that I did with them directly into government work. Um, And then my first government role was with the New South Wales Police Force, working in the domestic and family violence team and making some significant changes to the way we investigated Um, domestic violence, interviewed victims, interviewed offenders and worked through some of the major changes that have happened in New South Wales legislatively um, to progress domestic violence. Um, From there I've moved into two different government departments and have sort of taken the lessons out of the the behavioural analysis of um, prevention and intervention regarding domestic violence and applied it in different areas. So I worked with what used to be called the Family and Community Services Department um, and now working in regional New South Wales. And so I've adapted those skills to apply to, to the work and not just, like I said, limited to the domestic and violence and sexual assault, working across a, a wider gamut that brings social and economic growth for the communities. 
Yeah, wow. So twenty years you've been you've been in it doing this stuff. Yep. What what have the some been some of the biggest changes you've seen? I can only really speak from a New South Wales perspective. Um, So from a New South Wales perspective legally, I think one of the biggest things is that victims can now give evidence via AVL, um, audio-visual link. They don't need to appear in court. We've also seen a significant change in relation to any other crime. You don't necessarily need a victim. So if there's a homicide, for example, there is obviously no victim um, available. And so we've gotten to a state now where if a victim chooses not to come to court or becomes unfavourable, you can proceed the matter without them and that doesn't mean that the case gets thrown out. So that's probably been one of the biggest changes. Um, during my time and one of the pieces of work that That's I, a good change, sorry. It is. It? That's it's great. It's a fantastic yeah. change, okay. yeah. Um, one of the significant changes that I was sort of um, involved in was the use of domestic violence evidence kits um, where we could take police officers using contemporaneous notes, um, could photograph and video the scene, the victim, their statement, um, and use that as evidence in court. And that can now also, there's been significant changes in the legislation there that that can now be used as evidence in chief. They don't, again, need the victim there. And prior to that, they weren't able to use that? Correct, yeah. So in 2005, the New South Wales government gave the New South Wales Police Force a whole lot of video cameras and still cameras and said, go and use it, we'll change the legislation later on. Wow. Um, the legislation didn't come until uh, probably 2015, 16. Um, so we got police used to using it. We found you know, different pieces of legislation that we could use it as evidence in court. So we managed to get the usage up. You know, s- small change leads to big change. Yeah. We then had the evidence based, we had the practice base, and that fall led to the legislation change. Wow. What did uh, – I mean, how did you get into criminology in the first place? Is this something that you always wanted to get into? It's an interesting area. As a kid, I always wanted to be um, both a journalist and a lawyer. That was where my um, aspirations were. And I did journalism. I studied journalism and became a journalist. And I always found myself um, writing articles regarding domestic violence and sexual assault. And I first probably got um, hooked into it when I was actually studying for the HSC. Um, I used to study in the – Uh, Department of Public Prosecutions where a family friend used to work and I'd study in their law library and came across a whole lot of articles and probably instead of studying my legal studies subjects, I started looking into domestic violence. As I said, as a journalist, I started writing a whole lot of articles regarding domestic violence and then it got to the point where on my days off I used to go and, sound like a geek, um, sit in court and watch different court cases And one day I sat in on a family law court that had domestic violence and it completely changed the way that I saw the law. And so for me, I did a little bit of a pivot and decided to, um, instead of going and studying law, study criminology and specialise in domestic violence and sexual assault. Yeah, wow. that's the background. There you go. And so what do you think has been some of the biggest challenges you've seen in your time? In the space of domestic violence and sexual assault, I think there's the, the key one has been that DV and sexual assault have for a long time been seen as two separate entities. Um, you have your domestic violence specialist and you have your sexual assault specialist. You have your domestic violence services and you have your sexual assault services. And it's very rare that you don't have some form of sexual assault appearing in a domestic violence situation. Mm. There can be sexual assault without domestic violence. But more often than not, you will see sexual assault appear. Um, not always, but there, there will be elements of it there. Um, and so they, there probably needs to be greater collaboration between the two entities to work together um, in progressing the responses and the services that we do. I think the other biggest challenge has um, has been that the... The biggest problem has been is that it's constantly and only seen as a women's issue and it's not. In any other industry where you look at where the main person is a perpetrator, for example, um, in this situation, we know that it happens in both male and female relationships. We know it happens in both gay and lesbian relationships, um, but females still present as the main victim. Mm -hmm. But yet females are seen as the main people who advocate for it. And realistically, we need to have men who stand up for it. And that's what White Ribbon Day was originally. It was set up by men 
it wasn't a domestic violence service. It was a gender-based violence service. Um, you know, there's a great saying that used to be used and it doesn't get used a lot anymore, but minority men are the, um, are the problem, a majority men are the solution. And that's, that's something yeah. you lost sight of. Wow. That's simple but really powerful, isn't it? It is, absolutely. I didn't know White Ribbon started off as, as that. Yeah, so in, back in 1990, it started in Canada. Um, the You put me on the spot now, I can't remember his name. But um, there was a case where, it will come to me, um, a engineering student in the uh, Canada, Ontario University mm. um, was annoyed that the female students in his engineering class were getting all the opportunities, were getting the um, internships. Pissed off one day, he came in with a gun and shot all four, 14 female students. Wow. It was his male classmates who set up White Ribbon Day um, and ever since then have... That's um, how it started? Yeah, that's how it started. Oh, so it do started we. as a gender violence initiative, not as a domestic violence initiative. And so it started in Canada? And it started in Canada. Canada has always been in the forefront of domestic violence. So it's been really um, inspiring today to hear some of the um, innovation that's been happening is coming out of Canada because they've been at the forefront for a long time. Wow, that's really interesting. H- have you explored uh, the stuff going on in Canada yourself? I've, l- I've done some research. So one of the things when I was again with the New South Wales Police Force that we adapted from Canada was um, specialised domestic violence prosecutor training. So the New South Wales Police Force now has... Um, we have police prosecutors and we have police prosecutors who specialise in domestic violence. And only those who have completed that um, accredited course can prosecute DP cases. And what does that really delve into that separates that specialty out? Is it just understanding it a lot better? Is it? No, there's a number of things. So there's, it's a two-day intensive course where we bring the prosecutors together um, and we have internal as well as external specialists that speak on the course. I'm no longer involved, obviously. Um, but what we have is we, we go through understanding victimology, we go through understanding offender psychology, um, how offenders can use and manipulate the court and use and manipulate the way they give evidence in court. Um, We go through understanding different parts of the legislation, so not just the domestic violence legislation, but using things like the Sentencing and Procedures Act. We look at hate crimes and bias crimes and how if we have a single offender who has multiple victims, who um, uses the same uh, modus operandi, who has victims of a similar cultural background or, you know, looks similar, we can use a hate crimes um, section of the legislation that shows that they're, they've got a particular type, they've got a particular MO and therefore it's not just a single situation but we then can prosecute the different history that they've had as well and get their sentencing a lot stronger than just a, a Section 10 good behaviour bond. Yeah, well, Have you seen over the years that, that uh, the legislation or the penalties for domestic violence has, has it has it in gotten better no okay (laughs) um and one of the things i'm going to be speaking today is about how um unfortunately for domestic violence it still goes to a civil court we say that domestic violence is a crime it needs to be investigated it needs to be prosecuted and all that's happening but then it gets to the courts and it just dealt it's dealt as a civil matter and not as a criminal matter but it's in the crime act crimes act of 07 correct but it's dealt in the civil court until until the an AVO is breached. So unfortunately we treat every single domestic violence case um, as a whole. Every case must have an AVO before it can be um, reported, breached, and then we may take it to a criminal court depending on how severe the breach was. Sometimes it's too late. Correct, yeah. So it's not ever seen as an individual criminal case unless it's been charged as, for example, grievous bodily harm, then it will have DV in brackets, homicide, DV in brackets. Yeah, right. Um, but it will, you know, if the person's still alive and still breathing, then it will go through as a civil matter, they'll get an AVO, the onus is on the victim to breach it, get the person breached, and if it's severe enough, then it will get treated as in a criminal court. Or if you survive that. And if you survive that. Like that's... That's the challenge, isn't it? Correct, because yeah. the most dangerous time for a victim is after they've reported for domestic violence. Yeah. So, so tell us then, Amy, what do you think is the way, f- like how should it be? 
If I had my magic wand and could fix all of domestic violence, I mean, one of the things I'm talking about today is we need to take advantage of the opportunities and we need to stop innovating the status quo. We keep giving money to the domestic violence sector and it's it's been this, the funding for DV over the last five years has been astronomical and it's a great investment. But the language that we're using behind it is we're saying words like we want to eliminate domestic violence, we want to reduce domestic violence. Well, you can't do that and also reduce the... Cr- you can't reduce the crime and expect people to keep reporting it. It's the double-edged sword of domestic violence. If you want to increase the reporting, then you're going to increase... The crime. The crime. Mm. It's, it's, you know... Trump's theory of, you know, the more you look for it, the more it's there. Yeah. Of course it is. Where's all the funding going? It go majority of it goes to frontline services. Okay. And a lot of the frontline services are refuges that provide either housing for, for victims who are escaping domestic violence. So it looks at the homelessness issue of it. Um, some of the money goes to court advocacy services. Um, and what we're missing is some of the real intensive case management and counselling that victims need. Um, looking at understanding what the types of violence that they've been exposed to. So just to give you an example, back in the day when I used to work with victims, I would have victims come in and sit on the couch and they'd say, you know, I'm only experiencing this type of domestic violence. And you'd pull out the Duluth wheel of domestic violence and go through all the different cycles and you'd explain it to them. They'd go, well, yeah, I'm experiencing that. I'm experiencing that. And they start to realise that the forms that they're experiencing is actually all of them. It's not just one type. And all forms, even if they think they've never been emotionally and psychologically abused, all have a psychological impact. Mm. So they need to understand that. The other thing that's really common is victims will constantly say for those who have entered one relationship, entered that DV relationship and then entered another one, they'll ask um, why why do they keep picking abusive partners? And it's not that they're picking abusive partners, it's that the abuser can identify someone who's already been moulded and experience DV usually. Um, and so they get targeted. Oh, so they're more likely to go after those sorts of people? Correct. Offenders go after three different types of people. One who's already um, vulnerable because they've experienced it. The second kind is someone who's vulnerable because of either a disability, some sort of isolation. Um, they might speak English as a second language. And the third would be the challenge. You know the person that they're going to break, de- you know, break that person down. They're highly independent, self-sufficient, and so they see those people as a challenge. Wow, and most of them are uh, which category? Well, this is the thing because DV knows no ra- bounds. It's, it's, it's across everybody. all of those because you you're looking at all socioeconomic, educational backgrounds when you look at those three areas. Tell me, how, how do you with the crimes with the crime of DV? How do you prove crime that's not physical? And this is why it gets treated in the in the civil courts a lot of the time. Um, and it becomes really difficult because how do you prove something like financial abuse without getting a full audit of the finances? Mm. How do you prove um, the intention of the offender if they turn around and say, well, that's not what I was intending to yeah, do? Yeah, it's insinuated. It's Correct. assumed. And this is where different parts of the legislation can be used. It's kind of like, um, for example, intimidation in the Crimes Act. It's one of the few areas of legislation that allows a police officer, and again, I'm using New South Wales legislation, yeah. that a police officer can't charge on the first if I was to report, you know, I'm being intimidated. But what a police officer can do is, is go up to an offender and say, do you realise your behaviour is causing this to the person? If they turn around and say no, that gives the opportunity for the police officer to go, right, well, I'm telling you now, this behaviour that you're doing mm. constitutes as a crime. If you do it again, I can charge you. And so that warning, therefore, gets recorded in the system. And the next time the victim goes and reports it, police have got that record and they can, therefore, charge with intimidation. But it's really difficult to do in the first instance. And this is where it becomes really important for victims that go in and report the different incidents of domestic violence, whether it's physical, whether it's sexual, whether it's emotional, whether it's financial, whether it can be prosecuted or not, it builds the story. It builds the story over a period of time. And that story over a period of time, that narrative then gets presented to the court and that's when you can start prosecuting it. So they see the full history and its full context of all the dynamics 
And that's what makes it easier to prosecute because the legislation does mm. recognise all the different forms. But to prosecute it on one little incident makes it really difficult. And I shouldn't, not being, you know, putting it aside by saying it's little, but each case makes a, a stronger case for the next one. Yeah, and you just hope that they survive until the next one and the next one, right? I mean, that's... Correct. Uh, you mentioned that it that it's sometimes takes... Is it 26? 26 attempts before attempts? a victim will report it to the police for the first time. So by the time police are seeing a victim, they're already a repeat victim. So the, there isn't... It's very, very rare that the first time a person experiences domestic violence, they'll report it to the police straight away. Wow. So is that the solu- is that what we need to do? Is that the solution? We need to start empowering, educating, creating that more awareness. Education's the silver bullet. And that's the cliche that can be used across everything, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's, you know, from children learning anything. Yeah. Um, education is always going to be the silver bullet. The downside of education is the more we educate victims, the more educated offenders become. And this is one of the reasons why we'll probably never eliminate domestic violence. Because they're, they're understanding what they can get away with. Well, yeah, we, see, we start to see shifts. So 20 years ago when I first started in the industry, for example, it wasn't uncommon to see a woman who would wear um, long sleeves in winter covering up bruising on her arm. Sorry, in summer. Uh, bruising on the face, um, around the neck you'd see strangulation marks. That wasn't uncommon to be able to see on a day-to-day basis. Um, as education's happened, we moved into what we started seeing, um, swimsuit abuse, so parts of the body that are always covered up. So bruising would only be around the chest, to the stomach, the buttocks and the upper thighs. So mm. parts of the body that would never be exposed at any time. That's where they... That's right. That's where the abuse. So we started to see a shift as technologies come. You know, legislation has not kept up with technology. We've seen a massive increase and in shift into cyber stalking. We've seen a massive shift in um, what's colloquially referred to as revenge porn. We've seen a shift in harassing and stalking. In you know, whether it be cyber stalking, whether it be through um, social media, all these sort of things. These things are and, and legislation can't keep up. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, it's so easy for people to get tracked these days, isn't it? Correct. Um, You know, one of the best spy tools that anyone has on their phone is the Find My Friends app. Oh, yeah. That's highly used as an offender stalking tool. Um, You know, a lot of people don't realise that they have that. I had a case years and years ago where um, an offender who uh, had a car yard with, you know, one car would be for his wife. Mm. I mean, he had a tracker on it without her knowing, but he also had a, a kill switch, so she could only drive within 20 kilometres of her home. Um, and once she went beyond that boundary, the car would stop. So he always... And she didn't have a clue was, why. Had no idea why. So, you know, the technology is, is excelling and the way you... Some of the ads that you see it, um, there's there was an old... I don't know if it's still used, but MySpy used to be a program that was used... And it was sold of the whole, you know, I'm, I'm there looking after my wife because what happens if she goes out one day and she can't find her way back? Well, no, <laughs> that's not what the intention yeah, is. Right. So you're seeing the perpetrators be a lot more, um, a lot more cunning, a lot more understanding things a lot better from that respect then. Where do you see it happening in the next 20 years? I mean, how, where's it going to go? Is it scary to think about that? It really, really is. Yeah, it's, it's scary to know if this is where we are with technology and, you know, technology is still in its infancy. Yeah. Where are we going to be in 20 years? Um, you know, the generation of kids that are growing up who are completely um, dependent on technology, um, where does it go from there? Who knows? But, yeah, DV will take a very sharp turn, I think, in 20 years' time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that you think... I guess now there seems to be more awareness and stuff out there than what there was 20 years ago. But like you said, it's double-edged sword. It's st- it's still – I mean, statistics are still way too high. Yeah, and that's the problem. I mean, besides all this investment that's happening, you know, in every state and territory of Australia, um, we're still seeing one woman die every week. 
we're still seeing astronomical numbers of police attending. I think the numbers in New South Wales is that police respond to DV every 26 seconds. Is that right? It's it's known as the the non the, the daylight time of of domestic violence. There's there's no time that police aren't responding to domestic violence, and those numbers are very similar nearly every state of around the country. And is New South Wales seeing that predominantly in city areas, in regional areas, socio, low socioeconomic areas? All where? through. It, it again, there's no. You've got you do have hotspots. Every area does have particular hotspots, um, but it's not. It's not that you can turn around and go, it's because of this one particular cultural group, it's not because of this one particular socioeconomic area. Um, it, it's across the board. I, I specialised when I was working in, in the field um, with victims directly on the North Shore. Um, perceived affluence, because mm. of the perce- perception of the affluence, it was one of the lowest funded areas and yet we had some of the highest numbers. Um, Manly, for example, had the highest numbers of sexual assault in the state. Wow. So it knows no boundaries from that point of view. It, it's yeah, I mean that's incredible, really, isn't it? To to think about it like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is the problem. I think for too long we've held on to this myth that it's it it's a a lower socioeconomic mm. um, problem, and it's not that it's a lower socioeconomic problem. It's that those people come forward and report it. Yeah. And they're funded for a lot more services in those areas because of that myth. Yeah. Tell us, from the police point of view, how do you think it's structured now with the specialisation, prosecution and other task force, I assume, that are going on there? I mean, is it – do you think we've got the structure of it right in the response to it all? It can always be better. There's there's never a way – there's no silver bullet in this this space – is, is there always learnings for police? Absolutely. Is there always learning for services? Absolutely. Is there better opportunities for collaboration? 100%. Um, one of the things that the New South Wales Police Force is doing is that they are looking at the cross-cultural issues regarding domestic violence. They are considering things like the acculturation curve. Um, they're looking at communities, so newly settled migrants and refugees who are coming. They're working with those communities as they arrive in those towns um, directly and speaking to them about what domestic violence is in this country, what the laws are in New South Wales, what it means about child abuse, what it means about sexual assault. And they're not doing that because they're believing that these people are coming over, bringing violence with them. But what the acculturation curve teaches us and shows us is that as these communities come, there's a usually a shift in dynamics between the partners. So, for example, say we have... And this is just this isn't a true story, but I'm just using it as an example. It has happened, where you get two a couple that comes over from a country that's newly settling into Australia or migrating or as a refugee. They might be both doctors. Mm-hmm. The male in the relationship will turn around and go, "Well, no, I'm not going to go and get accredited all over again, but I'm not going to take a cleaning job." The wife in the relationship will turn around and go, "Well, we've got to pay rent, we've got to buy food. I'll take the cleaning job." So. She becomes the breadwinner. She starts developing networks at work. She starts improving her English. And a power shift starts to happen. Now, while they may never have experienced domestic violence in country of origin, they might start experiencing it for the very first time in their new country of Australia. And that's because there's this shift of where the woman starts to become independent within this relationship Mm. and the male starts to react. And so you start to see the first signs of domestic violence happening there. Police are taking that into consideration in the way that they interview and investigate domestic violence in these newly settled migrant groups. Wow. That's really interesting, isn't it? And it's a great way to be able to investigate it. So they're not, they're not investigating every single DV the same way that they investigated yesterday's offence, this morning's offence. Um, but like I said earlier, where we're being let down then is at the court's because it then all gets dealt with, like, one issue. Um, it's not case by case. AVO first, breach it, and then we'll see how we go. Yeah. Well, it, it doesn't seem to – it doesn't serve a lot of people in that respect, does it? No, not at all. And this is why it needs to be if, – if every investigation is treated individually, then the courts need to start treating it case by case as well. What about the time it takes to get this stuff done? 
it look it is it is tough and it does take a long time unfortunately um you know the the new south wales police force when i was working with them would say that a comprehensive investigation would take a minimum um of six hours for just a single incident that's if there's just one incident in that they've responded to and usually when they respond to a case there's multiple incidents um they put a lot of effort into getting their facts right, all their evidence right. And then when the courts potentially let them down, they become frustrated. And this is where it becomes really difficult for police officers who are trying to do the do th- the right thing because they're putting all their effort in. Yeah. And then if they're let down at the court end, they turn around and go, well, why do we bother? What's the point? And so that makes it really difficult in the sense that if they're not being supported by the courts, then it's not going to support them to do the thorough investigation the next time round. Uh, I mean, you'd just be so frustrated, wouldn't you, if that was the case because you, you're you trying to help, you're trying to save them and then all of a sudden to no avail. So, well, you got the piece of paper. Yeah. You get your AVO, but yeah. is that enough? And it's not a lot of the time. And I think this is the thing. I think we're not, we're not listening to the voices of the police officers who are saying, I have grave fears here. Yeah. I can tell you that I've now been out to this house three times. I don't think this is going to be... Um, a case where it, and just an AVO is going to work. Yeah, and, and so in an example like that, is, let's say someone's been uh, had twenty six incidents, got up the courage, gone to seek help. Then the chances that the offender per- perpetrators are how many times more likely to reoffend in that case when they've said something. And this is the thing: there's you've got two types of offenders. You're going to have offenders who turn around and go, well you know, F this, and they've offended and usually breached it within five minutes of the order being made because wow. they'll be going off at the person at court. Yeah. Um, but I think the statistics back in the day when I was still working with the police force was that the highest numbers were in um, first was in the first 24 hours and then you'd see the biggest um, breach would happen within the first two weeks of the order. Wow. So, I mean, then, and what hope do they have? I mean, that's because then they've got to start going back and reporting every incident after that. Correct. So the onus is on the victim to then go back and report every single incident. And then, again, the police, depending on how severe each breach is, has to build this case to take it back to the court. But still not make any charges? They can potentially on some. It depends on what the offence is. Okay. So if... Um, if it's non-physical? If it's non-physical, so say it's social media you know, telephonic, um, they will can usually get off with a warning a lot of the time. Um, you know, if it's intimidation and stalking, they can because there is an order on the AVO that says that. It's, again, whether or not it gets treated as a criminal or a civil matter. Um, that's a different ball game. The offender might be told by the court that they're on a Section 10 bond initially, um, which is a good behaviour bond. They might then get um, a, you know, um, community service then they might get you know a fine and then they might get something else but jail is definitely seen as a a last resort and sometimes it needs to be seen earlier what's is there any statistics on how effective that is at stopping further abuse avos or avos and then well avos let's, let's start with that one Look, the, the effectiveness of an AVO, again, it depends on the offender. So there there will be offenders out there who turn around and go, yep, okay, I cop it, I take accountability um, and I'll, I'll stop that behaviour. Does that happen on a high number? No, not really. Um, and do do some people just go, okay, this isn't this relationship's not going not the way the I wanted to, so they go away and, and probably re-offend somewhere else? Potentially, yeah. Um, in some instances where you see an offender who gets a new victim... Uh, they may forget about the old one. Um, but there are some incidences where you can see them constantly abusing over the years and it won't it won't change them because how dare that person leave. Are there some good examples of p- police working with, um, I'm sure there would be, but uh, victims to remove them safely, um, you know, prior to further offending and, and when the perpetrator is still out and about? Yeah, absolutely. Like there's there's numerous cases that um, police have, have had to either go above and beyond or just done even their job of, of getting those victims protected. 
Um, we we have in New South Wales where police can go in and remove the victim from the home and, and resettle them. Um, they can go back and get the victim's assets um, either in with the offender there or without the victim uh, without the offender there. So there's a number of provisions that we do have in New South Wales that do give police those powers to do that. At what point in time do they are they able to seek that sort of service? Is it usually when they're seeking the ABO? Oh, okay. So it's when you first report it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so if it's bad enough, you're saying that they then can go in there and help remove safely the victim from the... From the family home? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and then there's been certain situations where they can get the offender removed as well. Yeah. So it, it just depends. It depends on your police officer as always and it also depends on, you know, the the victim and the courts and how it gets prosecuted as well. Let's look at someone that's being prosecuted for it and they're in jail. Mm-hmm. What, what's, what sort of change, behavioural change uh, stuff is going on and is it effective? There, is, there are behaviour change programs that are taking place in um, correctional services. Um, are they effective? It's, it's had mixed reviews. I think it's interesting that um, we as a country introduce behaviour change programs not long after the research came out to say that they weren't that effective um, in the States and in Canada. Um, and one of the things that they said that had to be improved in their effectiveness was the way that they worked with victims as well. The other, One of the biggest criticisms regarding behaviour change programs was um, a lot of the time it's mandated that they, they do it. Um, like many things that are mandated, it doesn't work. You need to have some level of accountability. So if you mandate an alcoholic to go to rehab the chances of it being effective you know is is up in the air the same thing happens with domestic violence there has to be some level of accountability for them to be able to to accept the the behavior change analysis and program that it puts you through but in saying that there has had some successes and the ones that have been successful are the ones that work with the offender individually um they don't just work with the offender in a group setting because we have seen situations where offenders learn different tactics from different offenders around the room. Um, oh. They have contact with the victim to see how the, the the offender is interacting with that victim. They make sure that there are protection orders in place as well, particularly for those victims who have chosen not to leave the relationship and still remain in the, in the relationship. Um, and then there's also touching base with the kids. So it it's becomes a holistic service. And the lesson does all those sort of things. Um, the effectiveness of it and the long-term effects of it um, can be sometimes pulled into question. Sounds complicated, doesn't it? It's not a simple process, domestic violence, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and you've got to think that if, if earlier on people are getting um, sent to jail... I mean, what does that flow-on effect happen to the jail systems? And the, I mean, you could probably imagine that it'd probably overwhelm the system as well on that end. And this is it. If if police are responding every twenty six seconds, can we afford to put everyone in jail? No. And this might be one of the reasons why we don't deal with it as a criminal process in the very first instance. Um, do we want to start setting degrees of criminality on different parts of of domestic violence? Well, we already have that through the legislation and the way it's prosecuted. Um, you know, do we want to be putting people in jail for um, telecommunication offences? Well, it depends on the telecommunication offence. Yeah, or financial abuse. If, you, if you're not allowed to spend money on things and you're being controlled by this, somebody. And this is it. So, I mean, one of the cases that I had back in the day when I was working with victims again, I had an offender. She didn't work. The offender did. He would deadlock the doors and turn off the electricity when he left the home for work in the mornings. Wow. The electricity would go on an hour before he would arrive and dinner had to be ready by the time he got home. So, you know, that is such wow. an extreme That case. is extreme. And yet, what does that fit under which definition in the, in the legislation? It becomes, you know, how do you prosecute something like that? It, that was way more extreme than I was thinking. I was, I was thinking, you know, not allowed to spend money on certain things, you're not allowed to go out, that yep. sort of stuff. But how do you prove... How do you prove that? How do you prove that? Yeah, it becomes really difficult. So, and you know, the example that you gave does happen. We've we've had cases where I've I've had a victim who you know had 
um, five children would give be given a budget of you know one hundred and fifty dollars. Go get the shopping and come back with change. How do you do that? What are they on two minute noodles or something? This is it. So how do you how do you meet these needs, um, and how do you meet the requirements of the legislation as, at the same time? And how do you prosecute that? How do you show that the intentionality, the motive, and the motivation is coerciveness, control, and power and abuse? Yeah. And that takes a totally different skill set. It's not black and white. It's definitely not black and white, unfortunately. And yet the legislation is very black and white because the domestic, the domestic violence legislation in New South Wales is the only legislation that says that police must investigate. So even if the victim turns around and goes, no, no, I don't want to press charges. They have to. They have to. Whereas if you look at sexual assault, which is a criminal offence, if the victim doesn't want to proceed, the police don't have to. Is that right? So it's a totally different ball game. So the definition then is crucial, like you were saying earlier. One hundred percent between DV and sexual abuse. Yeah. And yeah. this, this become this is where it becomes a problem because police are mandated to investigate domestic violence, which is good. Absolutely. But but then it's not supported in the criminal sense. Yeah, which is really unusual. But yet, sexual abuse that should probably be still mandated should, and correct followed up on as well. Yeah, which um, is a crime. Isn't mandated to be investigated, but will always be treated as a criminal. Are they the key things you reckon we need to fix up right now? I think they are because a lot of the time we do see those marry up um, issues. You know, victims, particularly in New South Wales, for sexual assault can report those anonymously. Um, We have the sexual assault um, reporting online tool. But if you've got someone who reports sexual assault online, and then they disclose that there's domestic violence, the minute that gets flagged, police have to step in and start investigating that domestic violence element. Mm. So there's there's some juxtaposition still regarding domestic violence and sexual assault and they need to be, that gap needs to be closed. What's What do you think, in your opinion, is the best early intervention? It's a, it's a tough one, that one. I think some of the talks that we've heard today, and does it start from children? It absolutely does. Um, I can't remember which speaker it was. I think it was one of the opening speaks, uh, speakers who talked about, you know, as a teacher, um, you know, telling children, you know, that's okay, mind your own business, I'll deal with that. Does it start from the way we speak to our kids? Absolutely. Does it start from our gender stereotypes of how we treat children? 100%. You know, my brother has kids. He's got, a you know, a son and a, and a daughter. And I and my sister encourage you know, my nephew to play with dolls and, you know, my niece to play with the G.I. Joes and the Lego and all that sort of stuff. When we start stereotyping, um, you know, what children say and how they act and how they behave and what they play with, then we are starting a foundation of inequality. Mm. And that foundation of inequality just gets greater as we grow up. And that inequality can therefore lead to inequality in later on relationships you know when we're, lo- we're talking about domestic violence today a lot of the discussions have been about our adult relationships and what we know about domestic violence is that the first time young girls and boys are experiencing domestic violence are usually in their 15 year old to 18 year old teen relationships so if that's their first exposure to it mm-hmm. and they don't even realize some of them have, that they've been in an abusive relationship they've then be, got that predisposition to it in their adult relationships and that's where it becomes problematic because this is where you start seeing offenders and victims going from one relationship to another relationship because they've already got that foundation. Yeah. Don't know if that answers your question. No, but it's really interesting though. I mean that's starting at a young age, uh, having a look at the culture and the attitudes that we're actually – even subliminally in some instances, passing on to kids and stuff. So really trying to change that dialogue. Yeah, it's, it, it becomes vital because, you know, these kids that are being born in today's generation who will be starting school, you know, the child born in 2020, who will be starting school in 2025, who will be finishing school in 2040. What is the world going to look like mm. then? And if we don't start with this strong foundation now about what gender is and keeping on with these gender stereotypes then we are setting ourselves up for 
an absolute disaster in 15 to 20 years' time. Yeah. Well, let's hope we can do something about that then before that. Um, let's let's just uh, – let's go to COVID. I mean, how have you seen COVID impact um, in domestic the domestic violence? It's It's been an interesting space. Um, presently with my job I, working in, in public service, um, COVID with the border closures has been an interesting area. We – the way cross-borders have been dealing with COVID – um, probably needs to get a little bit better. We kind of seem to forget the cross-border issues um, that happen and we see that, we saw that with the borders closing where victims who were trying to escape domestic violence were trying to cross the borders um, and not being let in because they didn't have the correct permit um, and should they need a permit. And this is where, you know, when p- police identified this as a, as a problem um, and on, at checkpoints um, from Victorians coming into New South Wales, we saw a change in our public health order to allow emergency escaping of domestic violence as a condition and a, not requiring a physical permit that they could come across the border. Um, but it took an incident to happen for us to even realise that we we forgot about this whole cohort of vulnerable people. So originally there wasn't there wasn't planned for, there was an incident and then all of a sudden they made the exception. There was an amendment to the public health order, yeah. And did you see many people using that to come over? Well, because they didn't need to get a physical permit, we don't know what the numbers are. Okay. Um, But we had incidents where people were coming to the border and police had to turn them away saying, we can't let you in. Um, And it took a different, you know, a police officer saying, well, why? Why are you trying to cross the border so many times without a permit for the victim to go, I've got this DV situation? Yeah. Um, And that, you know, the fact that we forgot a whole cohort of Mm. people is problematic when we're doing these public health orders. So has how has it played out during COVID? I think it's there's a number of things. We in New South Wales, I don't know how well we did it in preparing for COVID, particularly with lockdowns. Um, they expected a massive spike to a whole lot of um, lifeline and DV crisis lines, but when you're locked down with the offender in the room with you, when are you going to get time to make that kind of call? Yeah. So. I think some of our planning in some of our different areas for COVID, um, we weren't prepared for it. We just didn't know how we could use the resources as well as the different technology to our advantage. I think as we moved along in COVID, we we started finding our feet um, and it's we're still learning about it. So I think once we start seeing some after-action reviews um, happening out of COVID um, and people sort of can catch their breath... I think we'll start seeing some interesting information and data. Could also have been a catalyst for triggering more DV incidences, especially when you see, like in some instances, now I'm not sure on this, I'll ask you, but the court system was closed for a bit, so cases weren't being seen for a while. You probably also had kids that weren't able to go and see, not go to school, but also not see the other parent if if there was separation and all of a sudden... That could um, that could actually Escalate trigger somebody yeah. to to do something like that. Is that did we see any of that stuff? Again, we're still waiting for the data, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. We definitely saw impacts on parenting orders and parental responsibility. We definitely saw um, there would have been we we assume and we are probably correct in assuming that there would have been first time DV incidents happening with lockdown. Um, we would have seen the financial impact of those who lost their jobs mm. being locked down, children are still in the home, um, tensions within the home escalating and therefore the first time DV, physical DV happens, um, might start. They might have had emotional and psychological and verbal happening for years, may not have recognised it or they may have, but we would have seen escalation points. Um, again, we won't know until we have an after-action mm. review. It would be interesting to sort of see how that you know how that happened and, and what the full fallout was of that was. Yeah, and I think the other thing we've got to take into consideration is, um, we still have to consider that there are going to be victims of domestic violence who don't know they're victims of domestic violence. So we are still missing a whole cohort of people um, that, because they don't know, we will never know. So the numbers that we find out will only ever be the tip of the iceberg. Mm. Yeah. 
it's it's almost scary, isn't it? Really thinking about what the real numbers would be in that instance. Yeah, and that's that's pre and post COVID. It's yeah. not just in relation to COVID. Yeah, that's that's something that we have to factor in all of our numbers when we're talking about domestic violence. The numbers that we're seeing are always going to be an underreporting. What do you think? Uh, if you look to the next couple of years, what do you think the trends are going to be for DV fences? Yeah. Oh. Look, I, think we'll, I don't think we've seen the end of how technology is going to be used. Um, vehicles are becoming smarter. Vehicles are becoming easier to hack. Um, and so, therefore, I think we'll start seeing a whole lot of different um, incidents that happen with, with motor vehicles um, in a totally different way. And I'm hoping not to be too morbid, but I think that can be anything from um, using it as a as a scare tactic all the way through to homicides that will take you know hopefully easier to investigate but who knows um, I think one of the areas that we'll definitely see because we've seen so many animals adopted during COVID I think we'll probably see an increase in animal abuse um, one of the things that we definitely know is a lot of victims won't leave DV because of their pets um, but we also know that there's a lot of pets who are killed because of domestic violence as well so I think mm. that's going to be the other the other escalation point um, I think we will start seeing shifts in how we respond to domestic violence like I said there's there's massive investment um, around the country and Commonwealth and from the Commonwealth regarding domestic violence at the moment a lot of investment at the moment is based on COVID response so in New South Wales uh, 21.5 million for just COVID response domestic violence that's that's huge money. Mm. Um, are we spreading it correctly? It's interesting. I've been to a number of presentations today and there's so many people still saying that they're not funded. Resources are so tight for, with everybody. And that's because we keep funding the same thing over and over. These yeah. innovative services that are being set up because they're innovative and they're so different to the status quo, they don't get the same look in as mm. um, these standard models that we adopt um, and constantly rename, rebrand, and they deliver the same thing. Are they seeing the results? Look, some of them definitely are, but is there, we have to get better at how we respond and therefore some of these innovative programs need to be considered. You seem to be a well-researched person. Tell us, uh, what if you look at internationally, are there any countries out there that have got this stuff together? Look, I think, like I said, Canada's definitely in the forefront. Canada's had a lot of um, work done in domestic violence. Does it mean that their numbers are any lower? No, everyone's numbers around the world are still too high. Yeah. Um, but like I said, the, the more you improve it, the more you invest in it, the, the more you encourage reporting, the people will. So that the double-edged sword will always remain with domestic violence. The more you fund it, the, you're not going to see a decline um, and that's one of the reasons why I said, you know, we have to get better with the language because we shouldn't be using words like um, eliminate domestic violence or um, because we won't eliminate it. Yeah. Because, like I said, if we start to see a drop in numbers, that means we're seeing a drop in reporting and we want to encourage that reporting. So Canada definitely has a lot of innovative programs. They've got a lot of innovative services and the way they respond from policing all the way through the court system. Um, there's a number of a couple of states in in America that implement definitely um, innovative programs that we should be looking at, um, and the UK has some things as well. But don't disregard some of the the countries that we probably wouldn't look at. So, for example, a couple of years ago, I travelled um, to Lebanon, and they had um, a really interesting program over there, which worked with um, victims of domestic violence, but over there to protect the women, they actually put them in the jail. So they remove them and put a lot of those women in jail and they have to pay their way out. And so the program that they've got for women, um, there's a, a retail store called Sarah's Bags and they work with all women who are in the jails and they've got a special section for the women who are victims of domestic violence who are currently incarcerated for their own safety in inverted commas. Um, and they she teaches them how to design and make bags and the profits from those bag sales all go back to those people in jail to get them out of out of jail. 
Um, and then they've been able to help them set up their small businesses, get them independent. Um, and while they're incarcerated, they're working with those victims to understand the dynamics of domestic violence so that they know how to survive outside once they're wow. released. So there's some innovative programs out there. Now, we're not that drastic, obviously. We don't jail our victims. <laughs> but there's lessons to be learned in what they're doing with that and how we could adapt that for our communities here. Yeah. That is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's incredible. I wonder if it's effective. It's Well, they, they've got a really high success rate of these women who are coming out of incarceration for their own safety who don't, don't enter into another abusive relationship. Okay. So is it successful from that element? Yeah, it is. Yes. So. But, but their safety is also like they've they're removed and they're into that's relocated. Right. That's it. So, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the short-term incarceration for their safety is that the response that we would never be adopting that. Yeah. But what we can look at and consider and adapt is what they're doing with these victims while they're in incarceration and those programs that they're doing for those victims. Yeah. Amy, is there anything else that you want to mention? I mean, it'd be great to tell everybody how they can get in touch with you and, and, and what you're up to with your with your business. Yeah, well, uh, like so I've set up my own consultancy and I do um, specialist services for, for businesses. So one of the areas that I look at with businesses is um, in New South Wales, for example, at the moment, a lot of businesses are becoming white ribbon accredited. So they're teaching their staff and their employees how to understand and recognise domestic violence. Um, one of the things that I do in my business is I work with managers, team leaders and peers. And it's not about waiting for someone to disclose domestic violence to you. But if you notice or you've got a suspicion that someone's experiencing domestic violence... What is it that you can do? And we, one of the presenters this, talked about this morning about being an effective bystander. And things that managers can do, for example, is if they notice a behaviour change in one of their, their workers, they're starting to see high absentees and they're starting to see their performance decline, you might not want to have that conversation and, and assume they're being experiencing domestic violence, but there's ways that they can do certain things that if they did them that can then be used as evidence in court and that can be quite powerful as the evidence as part of that victim's narrative mm. um, and fact sheet. So working with, with businesses about that. Um, and then I've also got the other part of my business that looks at any victims that sort of want to understand um, the victimology, that offender psychology, the overcoming that trauma and how to identify potential perpetrators um, so going back to my grassroots of where I first started, bringing that back again and looking at that. Wow. So there's there's the different elements um, of that. And then there's the sort of leadership and management, but building in that effective management and good leadership also recognises that sort of um, behavioural analysis of your team and how to use that and apply that, not just in a DV context, in, in a very you know various ways. It's incredible. You're a busy person with all that stuff going on. Keeps me busy. Uh, I imagine it'd be pretty rewarding though as well. Look, it definitely is. I mean, as as, as difficult and as complex as you said DV yeah. is, and it's definitely not black and white, um, being innovative the way we, we respond to it, looking at different opportunities that it presents to us, um, making those small changes um, here can lead to those big changes later on. And I think... You know, we, we keep looking for the big silver bullet that's going to end domestic violence. Mm. Let's stop looking for the big silver bullet and let's just have some really good programs and um, initiatives that can take, you know, they might take years um, to implement, but they will provide the fruits later on and they will get the bigger results later on. I think that's the, you know, we, we see change happen with small small steps each time. Well, you're an intelligent woman and that makes sense to me. Um, so let's hope that that can work out. How do people get in touch with you, Amy? So I can be – you can go through my website, which is um, AM Consultants and Associates. Um, I'm also – you can search for me on LinkedIn under yep. Amy Mouafi. Surname's M-O-U-A-F-I. Um, and my email address is amy.mouafi at amconsultantsandassociates.com. Perfect. Well, Amy, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate that and thanks for supporting the conference but also 
the greater good with what you're doing out there and educating people in, in prevention. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.